0: There's a lot of survivor bias in the startup world, right? Like you don't really hear about the founders who have failed. You hear about the ones who are successful. So you compare yourself to them and you're like, well, I'm not that. And so I think that I hesitated to go into that space for a long time because of it. But, you know, maybe that was fine because I learned a lot in my career. And by having held off, I bring a lot more experience to the table um, than I otherwise would have. And I think that part of why we are having the success that we have is that none of us are college dropouts or first few years in our careers all of us have had careers and we're kind of bringing that weight to the table of you know 10-ish plus years of work experience and really bringing that to the forefront in what we're doing
1: hey everyone welcome back to the SaaS revolution show brought to you by sas stock the conference that helps SaaS companies get traction growth and scale i'm your host alex Thuma, and i'll be looking at what it really takes to build and grow a sas company today now, how founders and entrepreneurs stay healthy on the journey. Now on with the show.
0: Hi everyone, Alice here from Sastock. We are officially less than two weeks out from Sastock 2023. So for those of you who have yet to get your ticket, I come bearing some final words of encouragement. We launched our event networking app earlier this week and have already seen hundreds of meetings being booked in between founders, investors, startups, speakers, you name it, everyone's getting involved. So if you want to rub shoulders and learn from some of the best and brightest in the industry, you need to be in Dublin in two weeks' time. Use code SASREV to get 20% off remaining tickets. That's SASREV, S-A-A-S-R-E-V. And we'll see you in Dublin.
1: All right, welcome to the SAS Revolution Show. I am your host, Alex Thumer, in a hot and sweaty uh, podcast studio in uh, Ramsgate uh, today, I am uh, live with Alex David, who is the uh, COO of Coralie uh, and is in uh, Zermatt. It looks like you're in a, uh, I don't know, some sort of hut in Zermatt, but uh, probably probably nicer than that. Uh,
0: yeah, a little step up. <laughs> I'm in a bunk bed situation, actually, in a, in a small hostel in in the village, but just came back from a nice seven miler so it's been a little bit brutal day but i, I had some time to wash off beforehand so nice and fresh for you very
1: good it's very good well alex great to have you uh on the podcast um and uh yeah i guess what we always start with like asking uh and trying to find out a little bit more about our guests uh, obviously i think we we now know that you like hiking um uh but uh, tell us who is uh, alex david
0: Uh, so, and we'll get into the work side of things, but, uh, Alex David loves to travel, loves to cook and eat, um, and spend most of my time if I'm not working, which as a startup founder is most of the time to my wife's chagrin, uh, is is I like to spend my time outside. So we did a nice hike today to get to a lovely restaurant for our, for our anniversary, uh, kind of lunch. Um, so definitely willing to hike for food. Um, other than that, I live in the Bay area with my wife and two dogs, uh, grew up internationally. Uh, my mom traveled a lot for work, so kind of grew up all over Europe and Asia, uh, came to the U S for, for uni and then wound up, uh, kind of hopping around the U S was in New York for a while and Atlanta for a while now the Bay area, um, working in both consulting and, and inside companies. So definitely like to move around quite a bit.
1: You mentioned you got two dogs there. I mean, this is probably a, a, a question that nobody expected, but I'm sure a lot of uh, uh, you know uh, founders and uh, people running SaaS companies have. When you travel uh, often, and I think you do travel like quite a bit, who looks after the pets? Because this is a problem that I struggle to solve myself. So I want to learn something straight away from you here.
0: Yeah, let's do it. Um, so I often have to solo travel because I'm I'm hopping around between whether it's investor meetings, customer meetings um and whatnot so most of the time it's just me traveling so my wife is at home with the with the pups but when we do travel like for this situation we have a a really nice um it's mostly a dog daycare but they do have overnight facilities and they love our pups and so they get to kind of play to their heart's content and also have like a nice cozy room for them to cuddle up together in the evening so we've been going to them now for a while we trust them a lot and uh very reasonable rate too, which in the Bay Area, having a dog is basically like having a kid as it relates to daycare costs. So it's finding a finding an expensive one is great.
1: I think, I think there's plenty of options in London. Uh, I may need to build my own one here in, uh, in, in Ramsgates as, uh, we, we don't have such a facility, but, uh, uh we'll, 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 good to know. And, uh, we'll, we'll move on. So tell us about, uh, Coralie Alex. So you're the CEO of Coralie. Um, tell us about why this business w- was created. What's the
0: founding story there? Definitely. So, um, it's very intertwined with my own background, uh, and so I'll give a little bit of that here as well. So uh, basically, my entire career has been in the monetization and pricing space. So I did um, my graduate work in it, then worked in consulting for just around seven years at Simon Kutcher & Partners, uh, which is a pricing consultancy, and so I did that for a while. I ran Go to Market and Pricing at Segment, pre the Twilio acquisition. So that's really been my, my entire career focus, and um, the original... Concept behind Coralie when it was in um, YC was just this understanding around pricing is a really important lever. Lots of startup founders don't really know what to do with it, and A B testing is really popular. And so, could one do a slightly smarter version of testing, but specifically around pricing? Um, Because, not to get overly academic, but when you do A B testing, there's inherently risks with specifically price testing because you let prices out into the market, which you then have to maintain in perpetuity potentially. Um, And so finding a smarter way to do that was really a problem that wanted to be solved. And so, um, yeah, and it's kind of grown from there as a kind of a price testing platform into a full monetization platform. Anything from managing discounts, managing paywalls, managing price points, packages, features, etc., etc. But it, it really came from there and really my kind of background being from more of the advisory place of wanting to make this more tactical approachable because a lot of startups can't afford to pay for large consultancies right so giving them the power to take control of their own pricing and do something with it was really really the impetus behind it
1: how long's the business been going sort of what stage are you you at 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 the moment
0: yeah so uh yc21 um winter class And then uh, we are a seed stage company, so still relatively early. There's eight of us, I think 10, 12 with contractors uh, based all over. So my CEO is actually close to you in in London. Uh, My CPO is in Seattle. I'm out of the Bay Area. And then we have engineers and staff all the way from Taiwan to Pune in India. So um, all over the place. And um, 12-ish customers I think we're at right now. A uh, good runway on, on ARR and MRR, and so we've been growing steadily. It's worth noting we actually started as more of a managed service, and so being able to help our clients solve those problems, but we realized that there was an inherent limit to the scalability of that model. And so earlier this year, we actually flipped that on its head, and instead of us using our software to help customers, we gave our software to our customers and said, help yourself. Um, that obviously was a complete shift for the business. Um, and it's been it's been really great ever since just being able to see all the new things that they try and do all the ideas that they bring to us that we can then kind of productize and scale up.
1: Very cool. Oh, very cool. With with your founders. So you said one is in in London. The other one is, is in Seattle, did you say? Or yeah. Um, how does that work? Like what's 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 good to operationalize that, um, you know, with having three co-founders, but in different, you know, geographies, time zones, etc. Um, I imagine it can be challenging, but maybe you, you'll say to the contrary, it works perfectly, but, uh, yeah, like why, how did, how did that end up? I mean, was that like where, where you guys always were? Um, and, and how does it work? How do you make that work?
0: Yeah, I mean, definitely it's a product of COVID, right? We were a COVID company. And so that's kind of how it started. I think, you know, Praveen, uh, my CPO co-founder, he was at Amazon and Microsoft. So he's been in, in Seattle for a long time now. Um, and then Andre was at BlackRock in uh, London. So he's kind of been there and has that as his home base. He went to, he did his PhD in machine learning and uh, AI there. So he's been in London for a long time as well. So we kind of all have our own bases. And don't get me wrong, it's definitely hard. Um, we don't sleep as much as we probably should, but you know that's the life of a co-founder. Um, but uh, I do think that there are some positives there too, uh, because we can cover, uh, Praveen actually, though he's based out of Seattle, he travels quite a lot and lives a bit of a nomad lifestyle, but we actually can cover pretty much the entire world in terms of time zones between the three of us. And so with one, like our engineering team, basically mostly being in, in Europe and India, Um, that's well covered. You know, Andre's a very technical CEO. Most of our customer base is in the U S and Western Europe. So I can cover that quite easily. Um, and so it does actually allow us to react to things and kind of do the whole follow the sun model as it relates to working and getting things done. So I, I do actually help that. think that helps with productivity to some degree.
1: Who covers Linktree in Australia?
0: Uh, that is me. So they, uh, they just start getting up around 1 PM, I think my time. So very. I uh, mostly do earlier meetings with them for their day, and every now and then I'll I'll head down to Melbourne and and see those guys, which is always fun.
1: And you mentioned YC twenty one, and uh, why did you go through YC? Were you a managed service before you went and 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 did the kind of pivot to your know, like SaaS uh, offering happen through that? Um, yeah, just tell us like why you went through it, what you learned, you know, the benefit really to the business though
0: Definitely. I mean. Uh, God's honest truth, Corley was created within YC. The idea that actually got into YC was not what we are today. <laughs> it was like a, a aggregation of Slack channel stuff originally. And they basically said, like, horrible idea, but great team. Like, come in and figure something else out. So lots of ideas kind of happened within the YC framework. But um, I think it was both an exceptional experience in it, just having access to the people, the network, the other co-founders that are there, but then also coming out of it, it's a really, really powerful network to be able to tap into. Um, a lot of our early customers are former YC customers or their founders had gone through YC. Uh, a lot of easy introductions can be made through that. There's a lot of kind of internal channels to be leveraged there. So it's a really, really powerful network to leverage. And I think, um, you know, 10 out of 10 would do it again.
1: And off the back of that, you you got your seed funding, pretty much. So it was it you went through demo day and and you, you got the investment uh, on the back of that? Uh, and then further to that, so YC twenty one, we've gone through twenty twenty two. You 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 got to uh, now, so about sort of like thirteen, you know, pretty good customers. Um, and in uh, I think early twenty twenty three, you entered the SAS.USA USA uh, pitch competition. Uh, so we did, uh, Talk, We ran our, our first event in, in Austin, first uh, big conference in, in the U.S. We've done some smaller events in the U.S. Uh, sort of pre-COVID. Um, and uh, you ended up, uh, uh, and Coralie, ended up uh, winning the competition. Um, so uh, just tell us a little bit about what, like, why did you guys uh, decide to enter, uh, I guess, first of all.
0: Yeah, and I will do a quick plug for everyone listening. Um, if you haven't had a chance, go to Sastoc. It's incredible. Um, I think it really speaks, Alex, to both you and the team, just how well it was organized. And I know it's obviously not your first time doing it, but it was the first time in the US. And so I think everyone I spoke to was just incredibly impressed. Um, and I think that most of the SaaS style conferences, you know, we have some going on right now in the Bay Area, they've gotten very, very large and they've become very impersonal. It's really hard to actually connect with fellow founders and, and really make something meaningful happen, which I love stock for, and so we will be a, a regular attendee moving forward. But back to your original question, I think originally we had no thoughts that we would win, obviously. Like, there were a lot of great startups that were going, solving some really, really cool problems. And I think every step of the way, you know, as we were continuing to advance, we were like, sure, okay, but, like, that was luck, we're not going to make it any further. But for us, it was always a way of getting our name out there, right? Brand awareness. There's a stage of people that will be watching. We threw a QR code up on our last slide so people could check us out for a free trial. It was really just an awareness play uh, because we never thought that we could win. Um, so that was a very pleasant surprise at the end.
1: And how, how, did, you, how did you prep or did you even prep for it? But uh, like what would you, in terms of coming in, knowing that you, I think you were up against like 50 other... Uh, startups or something like that? What was the the, the process before it it actually started?
0: Yeah, as much as every founder will probably hate me saying this, they can all probably relate. You're always somewhat in a fundraising mode. And you're kind of always thinking about it, refining your messaging. And you know, obviously, as you get much bigger, it gets easier. But especially at the early stages, it's just a process you're always in. And so, you know, we're constantly working through our deck. And so I think that to that extent, it wasn't necessarily prepping specifically. It's more like we're always prepping. We're always having these meetings. And I think this was a good forcing function for like, let's try out some new material. Let's think through some of the modern things that we've tried. We actually did a full redesign of the visuals of the deck for the for the competition. So that was like a really good forcing function for us. But yeah, realistically at this stage, you're just always kind of in that mindset.
1: What was the either the hardest thing or the most surprising thing, you, you know, throughout the process, apart from obviously winning at, uh, at, at the end?
0: Know if I would say it was surprising, but something that was really impactful is the judges. I think the judges were kind of a mix of investors, uh, operators, um, etc., and I think it was really helpful just getting their feedback. Right after every time, every time that we were going, you know, the first round, which was a little bit more intimate, not on the stage, they gave us immediate feedback on the bigger ones. Um, you know, you could easily go up to the judges and be like, what did you think? What did you have to say? Like anything you would do differently. So I think it, it was good tactical feedback, which I really, really enjoyed. And they also have really good questions. And those questions always kind of make you think like, how is my message being received? What are things I just take for granted that maybe I need to do a better job of explaining? Yada, yada, yada. So I think that kind of thing is just always super helpful because most of the time when you pitch, you don't get that, right? You get a yes or a no. And maybe if you have a good relationship with the VC or the investor, they'll give you some feedback. But, you know, as we all know, they have an incentive to want to be nice to you. So like they're not going to give you the harsher, honest feedback. And in a competition like this, it feels like there's less of that kind of barrier. And so it was just very honest, real feedback, which was super helpful.
1: And in terms of the impact to the business sort of post uh, um, uh, winning, um, you, you know, Maybe what are some of the, th- some of the things that, that have impacted Coralie since, uh, since then?
0: Yeah, I mean, I think just immediately at Sastock itself, uh, it was kind of hilarious um going around and being almost like the bell of the ball for like the next couple hours after the competition was done right everyone wanting to come up some people wanted to get pictures taken it was a very surreal experience um but just immediately the introductions that were made just being able to meet a lot of people so many people i mean you know sapphire ventures was there and so one of the uh, managing partners that was at um, emailed me immediately afterwards as like, thank you. Congratulations. Well-deserved yada, yada, let's talk. So like, it was a really good way of just, again, our goal was to get our name out there, which it definitely did. And so I think it was super impactful just in that regard, in terms of brand awareness and making a lot of connections.
1: Amazing. Amazing. Uh, and I know, uh, yourself and, uh, the Coralie, uh, team, you know, are experts on monetization. Obviously that's what you do. Um, but I think I also know that something that you're really kind of passionate about is company building and, uh, you know, and the human element and, you know, you've done that, uh, before you are doing it with Coralie now. Um, so let's talk about that, uh, uh, a little bit. So, I mean, given that Coralie is an early sort of stage team, I think you've mentioned something like 12 people, you know, how have you gone about, you know, um, and how would you advise sort of building the right team sort of early on?
0: Yeah. I mean, I think that the building part is, is really challenging, right? Because I think that when you're, when you're a company at scale, right, you can go through the motions, you have your standard hiring process, you have a team and you have a vetting process that can kind of be standardized and it works and yada, yada. I think that if you're looking for someone who's going to perform at that 80 to a hundred percent, which I would say is like the good, that's fine. You can't, you're always going to need someone to overperform at a startup, especially at our stage. Like people can't be performing at a hundred percent. They have to be performing at 150, 200%. The passion of every single person is what drives the company, not just the founders. And I think that's really hard to just like have a standard interview process for, right? Like uh, one of our our senior engineers, Rahul, I think we went through like a hundred candidates before we picked him. And I don't mean just like resume reviews. I mean interviews, tests, et cetera. Until we picked him, and it has paid off a lot. Like I, I don't think I've ever seen someone work data models the way he does. It's quite literally magic. Um, and so, I think that it's just really important to both get the right caliber and drive earlier on of someone who truly believes that they have an impact on your business and that they and that they actually can do it. Because again, just having someone who's just going to kind of clock in nine to five and do the 100% is just not enough at this stage.
1: Yeah, no, no, definitely hear you. I mean, I'd like, often though, I, I guess if people haven't done it before, um, you know, a lot of first time founders, pro- probably majority uh, out there, you know, they do make a lot of mistakes, uh, you know, in, in hiring. Um, now, you mentioned this specific example with Rahul and you 100 interviews to find this kind of right person. But what are some of the things that, that you would sort of recommend in terms of like uh, avoiding the mistakes kind of early on? Because they can really, you know, hurt a
0: business. Definitely. And we had we've had some of those. Um, I think the, the big thing to avoid is falling into the trap of like pedigree and names. I think it's very easy to say like, oh, this person went to an Ivy League school or they went to Oxford, Cambridge uh, or wherever, and then they wound up going to work at Google or they yada yada. It's, It's very easy to fall into that path of just saying like, we're going to outsource our testing to just say like, well, they have all these pedigrees, they must be good. And I think that again, for a normal company, that's probably true, but these And again, I don't want to generalize because I've also worked with some of the people that have that exact resume who are absolute all-stars. But, you know, we had the experience of a couple people who had that kind of background and they were very used to working a certain way. And that just doesn't always jive well with the way a startup has to work to be successful, right? There is just a lot of late nights, weekends. There's a lot of grit and and sweat that has to be poured into it to make it work. Um, That's why it's hard and not everyone can do it. And I think that sometimes you have to really look behind just what the the label is and really see like what are they actually able to do and what's driving them. Um, and that I think that's something we learned the hard way and we definitely will keep that in mind moving forward.
1: Speaking of, of we mentioned Google uh, there, how does a startup like yourself and, and others listening compete with the likes of Google and others, you know, when recruiting? Like what are the things that you can do to get that talent, to get the Rahul joining you and not joining google
0: you know on maybe double the salary or whatever yeah more like triple um (laughs) i mean honestly you can't you can't compete if someone is comparing you to google or apple or meta whatever it is right i don't think that's really a a battle you're going to win the person you're going to get is the type of person who doesn't want that job they want to work somewhere where they're not one of many they are the only person doing this one thing, right? They're the one who gets to actually own their kingdom of what they're given. They have their responsibility and they get to drive that. And I think, I I guess like as a founder, it is a bit of the culture that you set that tone and you're saying like, we're not hiring you as an engineer to just like look at a list of activities and say like, this is, you know, this is my daily scrum and these are the tasks that I have to complete today. It's you're telling me what we should be prioritizing in your work stream and you're taking charge of that. And we're going to look to you to be the expert to tell us what needs to be done here. And there are people who want that and people who don't. And generally, I think that will be a bit of a self-selection almost. And you want those people. And so most of the time when we're competing for talent, it's not with the likes of Meta, Apple, etc. We're competing with other startups,
1: makes sense. And look, I think it would be unfair for me, given that you guys are the monetization experts, to not ask you something around the uh, the, the topic. Um, but maybe, perhaps, like, given what you're seeing and you, you know what you've done before, what what are some of the monetization uh, mistakes or things that SaaS companies are doing, uh, whether they're aware they're doing it or, or not, right? You know, and then how, what you know, how do you improve that?
0: Definitely, I think that there's a a habit of people trying to hop on trends, I, and that's not necessarily bad. Like things are trendy for a reason, but I think you know PLG was a big one, and that's paid off for a lot of companies. Uh, Usage based pricing was another one that I saw a lot of, and again, that paid off for a lot of companies. Um, but it's I think the problem is a lot of people jump into it without actually tactically understanding what that means for their business, and so that's probably the number one. usage-based pricing specifically, that I wind up talking to a lot of founders about. Because most of us who have SaaS businesses, were based on an MRR or ARR model, which from a revenue recognition standpoint requires a certain amount of predictability of that revenue. If you're usage-based and you are charging as a pay-as-you-go model, there's no predictability, right? You're getting paid for however much they use, which can massively fluctuate. I'm not an accountant so take this with a grain of salt but generally from a revenue recognition standpoint that can cause problems. And so depending on how your investors want to value you etc like those financial metrics need to be considered and actually switching to usage based if you start usage based that's one thing but if you're you know say you're a series B company you've always done kind of committed contracts that are license based or something like that and then you want to switch to usage based you have to think through that. And if you're going to do some form of like pre-committed revenue amount in contracts where you have like a pre-committed l- limit of usage, for instance, then you have to deal with overages or underage. And how do you deal with that? Right? Like, are you overcharging people? Do you credit people? What, what's the right methodology there? And that kind of nuance is something that people oftentimes don't think through because they just hear usage-based pricing is all the raise. It's like what we should be doing. And so they jump into it And again, it's not necessarily bad for their business. They just don't necessarily think through all the caveats. And that's, I think, a big part that that I wind up seeing a lot of. Um, And then also, you know, just to be fair, and I know people like Kyle Poyer have talked about this a lot recently, but the thing with usage-based is as much as that means you're tracking value as it goes up, if someone wants to stop paying you, they will just stop using you and then there's no more payment happening. And we saw that a lot earlier this year, and um, kind of as everyone had to start tightening their belts, well, I have no committed contract to you. I can just stop using you, and then I can stop paying you. And so you saw people, the companies that were usage-based were, were hurting a lot, and they had to get quite creative quite quickly to kind of shift some things around contract-wise to be able to keep revenue coming in. So that there's a risk there, right? So it's worth worth thinking through.
1: Thanks. Thanks for sharing that. And let's move into the quickish fire round. So I'd like to know what one thing has moved the needle the most for you in your career?
0: Not and this might wind up being a theme, but not not getting too stuck in your ways. I think that, you know, if nothing else, COVID was a great example of things can change really quickly. And you just kind of have to roll with the punches and adapt. I think that's something that growing up, moving around a lot, I had to do a lot of, but in consulting too, right? Like you never know what your next project's going to be. You kind of have to hit the ground running and learn a whole new business in a few weeks to start being the expert on it and advising a customer on it. So I I think just kind of being able to roll with the punches is probably something I've gotten quite good at doing. And especially as a founder where things can change at any moment, you kind of just have to know how to roll with it.
1: What's the best advice you've ever received?
0: probably not to think more than like a quarter out if we're talking like business advice and again it kind of sticks with that like roll with the punches thing but like you can you can plan an 18 month timeline and all those roadmaps but things can change so quickly even at big businesses that like really planning for more than a quarter or thinking too far in advance it's very easy to kind of get into that mindset of just getting stuck in this process of like well if this happens then this can happen and this can happen yeah, but if any one of those dominoes starts to fall in a different direction, then, you know, what happens? So not to get too stuck in, in kind of that long-term thinking.
1: Yeah, and, and funnily enough, I mean, or, or, or not so funnily, and I'm sure many other people with the position, just before COVID, I, I'd finally got a five-year plan together for SaaS stock, and then it was just ripped up within, within <laughs> yeah. days. Uh, so that, that was unfortunate. Um, um, biggest failure you've made and lesson learned?
0: That's a good one. Um, biggest failure is probably, um, hesitating to get into the startup world for too long. I think that, um, I was always plagued by a lot of self-doubt around the idea of like, you know, you see these startup founders and there's a lot of survivor bias in the startup world, right? Like you don't really hear about the founders who have failed. You hear about the ones who are successful and you see, all the things that they've done. And so you compare yourself to them and you're like, well, I'm not that, right? Like I could never do that. And so I think that I hesitated to go into that space for a long time because of it. But, you know, maybe that was fine because I learned a lot in my career. And by having held off, I bring a lot more experience to the table um, than I otherwise would have. And I think that part of why we are having the success that we have is that none of us are college dropouts or first few years in our careers all of us have had careers and we're kind of bringing that weight to the table of you know 10ish plus years of work experience and really bringing that to the forefront in what we're doing
1: what's the hardest thing about being a COO
0: I think it's that you're just managing a lot of hats right like day to day it could be I'm our CFO I'm our CRO I'm our CMO and it's just kind of the context switching which can wind up being very inefficient just in terms of getting things done but at the same time you are that kind of multi pitch hitter you just kind of have to jump around right and so I think that that is it's a tough role to play but again giving my background it is the one I'm very comfortable doing so it's hard but it's also very rewarding because you get to do a lot of things and you get to learn a lot which is fun uh,
1: do you have a favorite business book uh, if so what is what is it and why
0: so it's, I'd have to probably throw in monetizing innovation Modern- and Georg did a fantastic job with that book, um, and I'm really excited for the sequel that's coming out hopefully later this year or next year. Um, and I do think that it really captures a lot of the essence around how to monetize around a product properly. Um, I think high output management is probably out there, up there too, right? That's a classic, but it, it's a really good one to really think about like how do you manage people and that managing people is in and of itself a job something that you should take seriously, think about seriously, and actually work at, not just something that's like a responsibility that like, oh, I guess I should have a one-on-one with this person every now and then, right? Like it is an actual part of your job. And I think that book does a really good job of thinking through that and just talking about it.
1: You, uh, you joined the founder membership uh, sort of earlier this year. Um, can I ask like, uh, why you joined? You know, what, what's the value for uh, somebody like yourself?
0: Yeah, I think what really appealed to me is that we're actually a bit of an outlier in that, in that most of the SFM group is more on the bootstrap side. And there's a lot of bootstrapping that happens there. And I think that especially coming from YC, which is very venture backed and you have a lot of kind of the stories, especially in the Valley, are very venture focused. And so I think it's really useful to tap into a group of people who think about things just totally differently. Right. Like the way they think about scale, the way they think about speed and operating. It's very much around that bootstrap mentality. And again, it's, you know, none of, none of the members that I've met or that are in my circle in particular are young, right? Like these are experienced professionals. They've had a business career or two, and they're leveraging that to really build now their own business out of. And I think it's really, really informative. And it just helps me think in a different way, which can be very powerful.
1: Well, uh um, we're glad to have you as a member. Um and, and thanks for sharing that. Uh, Alex, we come to the end of the podcast. Like where can people find you online if they want to reach out sort of personally? Uh and also Coralie uh as well.
0: Yeah, uh Corally.com, nice and easy. Um and then Alex David on LinkedIn. I post quite frequently. We have a blog that we're running, we do monthly um webinars and things like that. So I'm very, very active, very responsive on LinkedIn. If you ever want to get in touch, shoot me a note.
1: Awesome. Well, Alex, David, thanks so much for taking time out for, your, uh, I think, what is your anniversary, um, uh, not business anniversary, but personal anniversary uh, in Zamat. And uh, it's a good job at the time, the hiking, right, uh, as well. Um, really good to speak to you. Uh, thanks for sharing with the SaaS. community. Congrats on all the success so far. Looking forward to seeing, uh, you know, uh, where you guys go. Um, uh, thanks so much, Alex David, CEO of Coralie.
0: Thank you, Alex. And I'll see you in 40 days in Dublin.
1: Thanks for tuning in to this week's episode of the SaaS Revolution Show. I hope you enjoyed it. And if you learned something from it, check out sasdoc.com forward slash events to find all the upcoming SaaS conferences around the world. Want exclusive SaaS content and actionable insights to grow your SaaS? Join our community of over 36,000 SaaS founders at sasdoc.com.